Welcome to Literary Friction. I'm Octavia Bright, reporting to you from cyberspace with my fabulous co-host, Carrie Plitt. How are you, Carrie? I'm all right, Octavia. I am so glad to have you back recording with me. I missed you so much. I don't like doing shows alone, and it's just so lovely to see your face and hear your voice and be with you tonight. So thank you for coming back. Oh, um, I missed you too. I really, I can't wait to listen to your interview with Raven as well. I was sad not to meet her, but it sounds like it's going to be a great, great listen. She was brilliant, had the best answers to all the questions. But yeah, an answer to how I am, I think the combination of going back to work and a long lockdown in deep winter has been I described it to somebody the other day as a shock, and it really has felt like a shock. Like, I'm still kind of in shock from the beginning of January, and some days are better than others, but I'm just looking forward to spring with everything that I have and enjoying the snowdrops and the daffodils that are starting to sprout and clinging on to some version of hope and happiness. So yeah, it's been tough, but I'm okay. How are you doing? I am okay and also not very okay and it's kind of a weird it's a weird thing as you know my beloved father died of covid a couple of weeks ago so yeah it's um it's really strange grief is so all consuming you know and january went by in this strange blur of emergencies and fearful anticipation once he had his diagnosis and um listeners who've been tuning in for a while will know he my father had Alzheimer's and was living in a nursing home and this year has been well last year I guess it was 2020 was incredibly difficult and now he's he's gone and it's I don't know how to say it really I mean like in a way everything you just described is awful and 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 miserable anyway but there is some strange parallel with the experience of grief very acute experience of grief which it's not helpful to me but it's just it feels appropriate I guess there's Mm. something strange in this feeling of like well I'm in the deepest winter of my life so far in this experience of sadness and um I do feel a strange solidarity that you're all in it too (laughs) even though you're not in mine but we're in sort of there's 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 more of a comparable experience happening um, than there would be otherwise, you know? And so in a strange way, I have some gratitude for that. And now just like feeling able to hold on to some moments of normality again, um, you know, today, really one of the first days, actually, I felt more like a human being in the world. We've got the funeral next week. So uh, I've spent the day looking at nice readings and I've picked something Um, We've got some Dylan Thomas. We've got uh, a little reading from The Wind in the Willows, which dad and I love together. And we're going to do this very strange, socially distanced, very small farewell. And then we'll have a big raucous party for him in the summer, hopefully, if that's allowed. Yeah. And I don't know, it just it felt very important to me to be honest about what's going on on the show, especially because there are so many listeners who have been incredibly kind and supportive through dad's illness and and listening to me talk about him and so I want to say thank you to all of you for that as well and for holding some space for me and my family and yeah and also just to say I really don't know what will come out of my deeply foggy brain today so if you're all happy to bear with me then I'm incredibly happy to be here but I really don't know how it's gonna go. <laughs> well I think I speak for all our listeners when I say that 
first of all, you can do whatever you want. <laughs> and we're just happy to have you here. Thank you. Um, and we love you. Aww. We love you. That's a weird thing to say on behalf of all of our listeners, but I love you. And um, I feel very lucky to have you here with me today, despite Aww. everything that's happened. I love so. you too. Thank you. Thanks for having me back at Minnesota 18. <laughs> what, what a transition. <laughs> I don't know how else you do it without a shoehorn there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Whether you're new to the show or an old band, welcome. And thanks for tuning in. The format for these mini-sodes between full shows is, for the next half hour-ish, we'll first have an informal conversation about the topic at hand and anything else that might come up, and then recommend some cultural things that we've enjoyed lately with the usual musical interludes chosen by Eddie. That's right. And today we're talking about winter reads. Summer reading seems to get all the attention, a bit like summer loving. Hey, <laughs> still got it. <laughs> but as we hunker down into our second month of winter lockdown in the UK, we've been thinking about the kinds of books that we turn to in the colder months of the year. We're going to discuss what makes a good bad weather book and some of the best books set in the bleakest season. Not exclusively, but including Bleak House. <laughs> but before we get to the show, we do have one announcement, don't we, Carrie? Yes, we do. This is just a holding message to say that we are actually setting up a Patreon and it should be ready in the next month or so. We're going to be offering some amazing extra monthly content, if we do say so ourselves, including the chance for patrons to suggest topics for us to discuss. So keep your eyes on our socials. But for now, stay tuned for our discussion of winter reads. So, Ms. Carrie Plitt, what for you defines a winter read? I know you love a definition. Excellent question, Octavia. I mean, it, um, might, it, it might even be one that you came up with. <laughs> what? No. <laughs> so, well, first I wanted to admit that I was thinking about this past month of January, and I haven't actually read anything for pleasure for the entire month. I've really been in a reading rut. I've tried some things. I've just put them down. And I think it's worth acknowledging when we're talking about winter reads that sometimes when times and the weather are both bleak, it's just not always easy to read. We've talked about this a bit in, in the context of the pandemic as well. And I just always read more in the spring and summer when I'm generally happier. So yeah, in some ways, it's like winter reads means not reads. <laughs> but that's not my answer. I did do a decent amount of reading over the Christmas break, and I always do. And I have mentioned before that for the past three years, I've treated myself to a ton of French novel from the Dublin Murder Squad series, which I did this year as well. I read The Likeness, which is the second book in the series. And in some ways, I was thinking about it, these books really do encapsulate what I often think of as a winter read. So they're very long. They're totally engrossing, psychologically complex. They're pretty dark and also just relatively damp. Um, they're set in Ireland and it's like always raining or, you know, chilly. And I think... I'm looking for books in the winter that just take me away and capture my full attention like these do, but not books that are really happy or like quite literally sunny. I kind of want something that reflects my mood, but also helps me escape, if that makes sense. Um, totally makes sense. 
Yeah, and I, I kind of see sweeping sagas in this category as well. With Raven, the book I recommended was The Interestings by Meg Wallitzer, and that was exactly what I wanted to read. Um, I would put The Vanishing Half in this category too, which I read earlier in the year and and just absolutely transported me in this like sweeping generational saga. But that was also very psychologically complex and emotionally deep. So that's my that's my ideal winter read. Those are the books I like to read. How about you? Yeah, I mean, quite similar, I think. I want total absorption. I want like deep, deep immersion in a world, you know, and and actually, especially quite long books, because I'm, I'm really like, needing something to look forward to when the day ends at fucking 4pm. Yeah. <laughs> and to get me through the winter nights. So I think I'm looking often for things with a really rich story, you know, um, psychologically complex is a great way of putting it. But yeah, sagas, like something that requires a bit of me, you know, but not too much. Like The Secret History is my perfect winter read, I think, because it's really compelling. It's pl- it's very plot driven, right, as a book. But the character studies are so rich. I also think of Dickens as very wintry reading, probably for the very obvious reason of A Christmas Carol, which I also don't like Dickens very much. <laughs> I do. I think of his books as very wintry. They're long. And, and again, like character driven, like, um, Great Expectations is a really wintry book in my mind. But this winter, actually, I've had quite a a rarefied reading experience because my father was so ill. Before he contracted COVID, he was already unwell with pneumonia and things like that. So the months of December and January really were very unusual. And I was spending a lot of time in a bubble with my mum in her house without all of my books, without all of my things, and also really unable to sit still because I was so kind of worried. And so I did what I always do when I'm in that frame of mind, which is turn to audiobooks. I listened to every goddamn book that Elena Ferrante has ever written. (laughs) (laughs) I started with the Neapolitan Quartet. I've now read all the rest of them. They're all translated by Anne Goldstein. And they're all narrated on audiobook by the same woman. Her name is Hilary Huber. And she has this extraordinary way of reading and her voice has now become synonymous to this kind of emotionally deep, um, rich escapism that is not really escapism because it's so completely real. And I feel like I've been in this incredibly rich collaboration with Ferrante and Goldstein and Huber and then all of the different women narrators of the fiction. I've almost finished that. I'm on the last one that I'm reading now, which is The the Days of Abandonment. And I just, my brain is now populated by all of these different women and it's really helpful. (laughs) And I think the thing that's drawing me consistently to her writing is it's escapism in that it's set in Italy. Um, A lot of them are set in the past, their lives that don't resemble mine at all in some ways. And then in other ways, absolutely do because she's deep in that emotional experience of of life. But it's really something about how honest and unflinching she is and how uh, analytical she is in all of her characters' internal narratives and uh, internal monologues rather. And I think I tried to read some contemporary fiction in this time and I just couldn't do it. Um, Like more contemporary style, I guess is what I mean. Like reading anything tricksy or stylized or self-consciously clever Um, which are all things normally I really love, has just felt insubstantial and really thin and inconsequential when held up to this experience of sadness and grief. So really, uh, you know, I'm in a phase of deep emotional reflection and I need that to be reflected in what I'm reading. And 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's new. It's a new relationship to reading for me. So this winter of my life is just going to be the Ferrante winter, basically. (laughs) (laughs) That's such a beautiful way to put it. And it's interesting because I think that's my feeling about reading more often than it is yours. But in the same way, I think I gravitate towards those books even more in the winter. And maybe it is because of that, the emotional reflection that we're forced to do during this season. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense. It's funny, isn't it? It's really like, I think it's not, I don't want to set up a completely unhelpful and false dichotomy between intellect and emotion because they are not separate from one another. They deeply inform one another. But there is something about the different demands on your mind as a reader to kind of highly stylized writing that is playful and doing something with sound or or even actually, I mean, I found there's a couple of books I'm not going to name and shame because I don't think that I'm not meaning to shame them because I'm really looking forward to reading them. But there are two contemporary novels about basically the internet. And I just couldn't do it because I was like, I don't fucking care <laughs> about the internet right now. <laughs> you know, like I care yeah. about love and loss and like, you know, huge oceanic feelings. And the internet right now feels like a trash can that's overflowing with stuff I want to turn my back on does that make sense yeah it makes a lot of sense maybe reading novels that reflect our current anxieties is more difficult when you have less of a barrier between you and the world yeah and and between yourself and and feeling yeah Um, because I don't think a novel about the internet you know necessarily has to be unemotional no it definitely is about further exploring our our current moment rather than escaping from it. Yeah, and definitely it's about reflecting how our current moment kind of, how we respond emotionally maybe, but to our current moment. What I'm hungering for is, I guess, more timeless experiences. And that's Mm. the thing about Ferrante's writing that's so powerful, that even when the story is located in a temporal universe that is long ago or very different always the emotional resonance is relevant you know and I think that that Mm. that's that's what I look for in like the great Russian novel novels as well you know and some of like the old French books like there's just it's something else it's something else the contemporary novel is a wonderful thing and I will be back (laughs) but I'm not there right now (laughs) but do you think that the actual locale in which you're reading has something to do with it? Like does being indoors rather than say like on the beach or in like a beautiful springtime meadow (laughs) mean that you can focus more on a book? Yeah, I think so. I definitely find it easier to read on the couch than on the beach. And, you know, in nice weather, I'm, I'm distracted by nice weather. (laughs) when it's cold and disgusting I'm I want to be indoors and reading and yeah we were talking about long books I I think I tend to read longer books during the winter months um partially just because I have more time to focus on reading uh, and and on something that demands my full attention but then I was thinking about this and I was like I actually can't think of any specific instances where that was true I I just (laughs) feel like it might be true. And and then I was like, well, maybe it's because summer is such a sensory time. And I'm also often doing things that are like really different from my life. So I remember reading books in the summer, whereas I don't really remember reading books that I was just like on my couch reading in the winter during a nondescript 
drab day. So maybe it still is true, but my brain is just incapable of keeping that information. Right. You don't have those associations. I mean, that makes a lot of sense to me. I get it completely. I think for me, it's slightly different because until a few years ago, I had the academic year thing going on. So always over Christmas, I would have a fuck ton of books to read (laughs) and like with pressure, you know? Um, So I actually have strong sensory memories of winter's with piles of books on my bed uh, down at my uncle's farm or whatever in different places, basically. Um, And I have one really powerful memory of reading a book called uh, The Songs of Maldoror by the Comte de Lautremont, Les Chants de Maldoror en Francais. And um, it's an insane book. It's a long prose poem that descends into mad automatic writing and it's narrated by, mostly narrated, I should say, by this character Maldoror, who's basically like an encompassment of the idea of evil and he presides over these really disjointed surreal episodes and it is just definitely not one for the beach (laughs) (laughs) I feel like it was kind of I read it in this deeply stressed cocoon when I was doing my master's and I was going to write an essay about it with some other things and it was dark outside so the windows were black and I could feel his creepy spirit roaming around and it yeah it felt very apt Mm. definitely not a cozy read though I mean do you think that you turn more to cozy reads in the winter yeah that's interesting because it it seems like you kind of like to embrace the darkness in some ways and and the strangeness and the weirdness in in your winter reading and I I feel like maybe I do turn to slightly cozier reads I mean we've discussed this in the past I I don't reread books a lot so my definition of a cozy read would maybe be something that I think might be cozy, although I wouldn't know whether it is or not until I read it. You sound like an alien coming to the planet. <laughs> cozy? <laughs> what is cozy? Did I actually you know carries a robot. <laughs> you know me. I cozy is like my main mode. You do love it. You love you love yeah. to be cozy. But maybe I like to be cozy and then uh, push the boundary of new literature. But no, that's not true either. Um, (laughs) In the past, as I've discussed, my one comfort read, I think, is Harry Potter, which I now feel pretty conflicted about because J.K. Rowling has outed herself as a massive transphobe. But I have definitely turned to those books in darker times, and those darker times do tend to be the winter. I've definitely started reading that series again in the depths of winter, just needing something to cheer me up and and make me happier. So yes, I do think I turn to cozier reads in the winter. How about you? Well, I'm going to be obtuse and say uh, sometimes yes, sometimes no, because I I think whether you're into Christmas or not, the fact that it's so culturally dominating in December, if you're in the Western world, means that the whole month ends up being some kind of collective nostalgia trip, like the same films on TV, the same god-awful songs on the radio. And so I think there's like this weird collective experience of uh, being drawn back to stories from before. And I think especially if you've got children in your life, right? Like you you go over the stories, you create traditions, all this kind of stuff. And I think that just seeps into, certainly for me, my experience of the world in a way that when I've spent Christmas in different hemisphere with sunshine, for example, infinitely better in my view, I haven't felt. So it's. I think there is something going on in, in the traditions that, that surround us in the winter that it's kind of hard to separate from other things great point very oh, astute point thanks babe yeah I think you've you've cracked it it's funny isn't it but it's it, yeah it's sort of it's definitely a thing so like the secret history is a book that I've read many times in the winter and it's a reliable place to go I wouldn't call it a cozy book though what would be a cozy read I wonder <laughs> 
I guess like yeah. uh, Cold Comfort Farm, which I've banged on about so much on the show as being like a comfort <laughs> read, but that is a very cozy book and that is an excellent book to read in the winter for sure because it's cheerful, you know. And what you're talking about with Harry Potter, which yes, one of the big tragedies aside from the fact that transphobia is violent and totally reprehensible in any way is also that JK Rowling created this universe that seemed for years so innocent Mm. and now we just can't experience it like that and it's no longer a cozy or comfortable place. Philip Pullman, the books are great to read in the winter and they are certainly not cozy but there is something cozy about the total escapism of them perhaps. Yeah, and the, there's something cozy about returning to a place of childhood for yourself. Yeah. You know, there is a there is a comfort to returning to stories that we read as children and and that we first experienced as children. At least for me. Oh, totally. Is. Like *Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe*, which is actually not a book I have reread, but I have definitely watched TV adaptations <laughs> in the winter month um, and enjoyed them. What about books about cold places or things? Just thinking of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe and that freezing winter wonderland and everything. Like, Would you rather read about something that reflects the grey, wet, <laughs> bleak of the outside or do you prefer total escapism? Prefer to read about something bleak. As I said before, I don't want to read anything that's too bleak or unrelenting in winter. I just don't think my constitution can handle it when it's it's just more fragile and and so I'd want something cozy but cold. I really don't like to read really sunny, happy books set in Italy or warm places or whatever during the winter. It just depresses me too much that I'm not there. I just can't take it. So I won't be pulling out The Talented Mr. Ripley or The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants in January. <laughs> okay, a question for you. Yes. Do you remember what time of year it was when you read A Little Life? I think it was the summer. I because I f- almost fainted on the tube. Yeah, reading it. Yeah, it was the summer. Interesting. Why do you ask? Well, because it's a very unrelenting book. I mean, I couldn't finish it. I didn't get very far with it at all. And I, it's one that I, I would, I would like to read because I, I want to understand the phenomenon of it. I guess. And I, you know, you found it such a, an interesting experience to read it. But you know, I like when I just heard you say the word unrelenting, I was thinking, mm, I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> I think I maybe would have struggled reading that book during the winter. I mean, I struggled reading it during the summer and I'm still not sure about the ethics of it, but I definitely felt more robustly ready for it reading it in the summer. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I am very different in this respect. I want to be taken to the hot, hot sun. I want you to take me away from the misery of England always, (laughs) but especially in the winter. Um, and now I'm saying that I'm desperately trying to remember a hot, sunny book that I've read in the winter. And um, I can't think of an example. I guess the Ferrante books kind of count. But yeah, I'm definitely into it. It makes me optimistic for what's coming. It really, oh God, just spring, summer. I think, um, yeah, I think I'd say because I generally want like meaty books in the winter, I'm probably most up for one that covers all the seasons, you know, like I, I want to be taken through at least one year. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So I'd like, I'd like that variation. I think that's probably, if I were thinking in this temporal way about it, I think what I would most like right now is just a reminder that all things wax and wane, you know? Um, Mm. And just as there has to always be winter, there will always be summer and there will always be spring in between and there will always be autumn as well. And just, I feel like that is, uh, that's a very anchoring, grounding 
place to live, you know, when things are very difficult. Yes. Yeah, me too. Maybe I should finally read the Ali Smith books. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that sounds bitchy. I did not mean that to sound bitchy. Those also are the definition of responding to the contemporary moment. And oh, yeah. also she's known for like playful language. So maybe they would not be the best words <laughs> for you right now. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> what about beyond the question of what to read in winter? Are there any books that you think of as being particularly wintry? Like we've had a few examples so far, but is there anything else you want to give a shout out to? Yeah, it's so it's so interesting, isn't it? Because I think there are so many books set over a summer. You know, you can you can just instantly think of, you know, Line of Beauty or um no, I can only think of that. But um, <laughs> Call Me by you know Your Name, I mean. isn't that? Oh yes, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. Call me by your name. You know, so many summer books, Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. <laughs> but there are fewer books set over the course of one winter, certainly. And when I was thinking of examples of this, I was thinking of books where there were particularly memorable scenes that happened in colder snow, um, even if the, they they didn't define the whole book. So I was thinking of Frankenstein, oh, which yeah. has that wonderful scene in the Arctic, and also just as seems to be cold. I mean, it's in Switzerland; it's very cold. You mentioned the line in the Witch in the Wardrobe. I think that's a great example. Um, Ethan Frome, which has that famous sledding scene at the end by Edith Wharton. It's very New England, kind of cold, wintry. I was thinking of Laura Ingalls Wilder, which I loved those Little House on the Prairie books when I was a kid. And those definitely took in all of the seasons in the most wonderful way. But there were always really great winter scenes. And um, there's this great scene in Little House in the Big Woods where they make maple syrup candy by spreading maple syrup on the snow and it sort of hardens and then you can have it. Oh my God, yum. Yeah, I mean, the best things about those books are food. Um, Listening to you talk about that makes me, reminds me immediately, Little Women is one of those books too. mm, Yeah. And then I was also, one that you mentioned is The Secret History. Yeah. Which has the amazing scene at the beginning with Bunny. Um, I always think about the scene when he's um, living in above a violin maker, maybe. And the the roof, like the snow is literally falling onto him because the roof isn't fully fixed or something like that. And it's just like the way Donna Tartt captures being cold in New England. And I went to college very near where that novel is supposedly set and it was like the bitterest cold I've ever been in my life (sighs) within those four years and she just perfectly captures that in her fiction yeah Um, and I think that's a real feat to to capture the experience of being that cold it's true I feel like actually come to think of it the goldfinch has some winter moments in it as well she's just a wintry lady I think she is quite a wintry lady (laughs) (laughs) how about you what what were you thinking of well top line is uh winter is coming obviously game of thrones which are not books i've read but i did watch the tv series but they that popped into my head because you know winter is coming is something that rattles around in my brain maybe more than i would like actually um (laughs) anna karenina feels like a big winter book to me in many ways partly because it gives me everything i want from a winter book but also I think that there are wintry scenes. I have strong memories of Anna Karenina and Fur. Dr. Shivago is a very wintry one. I think John Le Carre actually books are wintry associations for me. The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, maybe top line, but... um, (laughs) (laughs) I haven't read any John Le Carre. Oh my God, you have such a treat in store. I just can't wait for you to read his books. They're 
exquisite, really. I mean, such a talented storyteller. Brilliant. They're very Brilliant. English, yeah. I think you'll find. I think you'll find them amusing for that. <laughs> well, I like the English. You do. We're very lucky. Despite myself. We're very lucky that you <laughs> like us. <laughs> I also actually, you, you were saying about sagas, but I think series in general. I think I read the Stieg Larsson books in the winter and they feel like quite wintry books. Mm. The Dragon Tattoo series. Yeah. I also haven't read those, but great examples. Thanks, my love. I, You know, I don't know if the Stieg Larsson books are for you, really. No, I'm not going to read them. Yeah, I, I don't think yeah. you're going to read them either. Cool. Tell us about your winter reads. Yeah. Um, tell us why what you want to read in winter. Yeah, and what we do. missed out from our list. I'm sure that would be many. Tweet us or uh, <laughs> ping us on Instagram or drop us an email. We're going to play you some music and we will be back to give you our cultural recommendations. My name is Octavia Bright. I'm back here with Carrie Plitt to give you our general cultural recommendations. So some thoughts about things we've done lately. I should say consumed, really, because no one's been doing anything that are not reading that we want to tell you about. So Carrie, hit me with your number one. My number one is a movie called Mustang. Have you heard or seen this? No. Oh, it is so good, Octavia. I think you would really like it as well. So we got a couch right before Christmas. Congratulations. Um, which was very exciting. We had a very, very uncomfortable love seat that you could not lie down in. And we live we live in a rented house and it was the furniture that came with the house. And we finally decided we needed to replace it. And it has been a wonderful thing that has like actually kind of transformed my life, which you know, it doesn't take much these days because my life is very, <laughs> it's very samey, but it, it it has been great. And I'm suddenly watching way more movies because I now actually like, like feel comfortable watching movies downstairs <laughs> in, our, in our living room. Revolution. Um, but one of those movies was Mustang, which came out in 2015. It's a joint Turkish-French production. I remember people talking about this, but I didn't watch it at the time. It was the first film directed and co-written by, and I am, uh, apologies if I get this wrong, but her name's Denise Gazme Erguven. And you might um, see why I wanted to watch this when I describe the plot to you. It's about a group of five sisters in rural Turkey one day after school, they're seen playing in the water with a group of boys and basically accused of sullying their modesty. And then they're locked inside their house, which is basically turned into a wife factory, which is how one of the the younger sisters described it. And they're kind of gradually married off. It's a film about how the patriarchy oppresses women. And there are some moments in this film that are just like desperately, desperately sad. But it's so joyful and beautiful and filled with light and laughter and the cinematography is stunning all of the sisters only one of whom had acted professionally before this are brilliant actors and I have to say it maybe it took on special resonance as I watched it locked inside my house watching them be locked inside their house <laughs> and I I basically just I I cannot recommend it highly enough I basically wept I mean if you want kind of like good emotional catharsis I actually cried for 
the last three quarters of the movie. I couldn't stop crying. You can rent it on YouTube or Amazon in the UK. It's really worth it. So watch Mustang. I really genuinely definitely will. That sounds brilliant. I kind of can't believe I missed it. I was really surprised too. And I don't know what made me all of a sudden want to watch it. I think I saw somebody mention it on Twitter and it sounded like exactly what I wanted to see. And it was exactly what I wanted to see. How about you? Well, my first one is, I mean, talk about emotional catharsis. This is a podcast series called Goodbye to All This. And I found it, I can't even remember, honestly, in a days when when dad was very sick and I was looking for things to listen to and I had listened to all of You're Wrong About and the other podcasts that I look to to be taken somewhere else, you know, away from, from big feelings. And I stumbled into this podcast, which is all about dying. And, you know, I kind of started listening to it without really, I just wasn't in a place where I was processing things very well. And was completely and utterly drawn in and captivated. It is exquisite storytelling by a woman called Sophie Townsend, who tells the story of her husband's cancer diagnosis, his illness and his death. And it spans quite a long time, many years, and describes how she and her daughters cope with it and how he coped with it. And then after his death, and it is just, she has this extraordinarily direct and honest way of speaking. And her voice is very slow and um, she's Australian. It's it's all set in Australia. It's one of the most generous audio productions I've heard. She really, really brings us into her world. Um, but it's clear that it's something that she's made with enough emotional distance from the experience to kind of give it the appropriate boundaries, if you know what I mean. So it's, mm-hmm. it's like when really, really magical, uh, emotional, connection can happen with a piece of art where someone allows you into their process, but they don't burden you with it, you know? And I think it's such a delicate thing to do when dealing with grief and death, especially in illness, and she really nails it. And also it it has such great sound production. So there's wonderful music and the way that they use kind of foley effects and music and sounds of the waves and everything. It's just, just really, really, really well done. I think it's BBC and somebody else I can't remember um, but it's on all major podcast platforms and I would I would really recommend it if you're going through an experience of loss or grief and need a bit of solidarity but I would also really recommend it to anyone who's interested in human experience and in all of its kind of richness and maybe if you've ever thought about how to pay tribute to a life without lionizing someone you know like to to truthfully bear witness I think is a, a very important gift you can give someone who's who's dying. And she really, really does that. So yeah, goodbye to all this. Find it. Listen. Oh, it sounds brilliant. It's so good. It's so, so good. I feel like that and appearances, the Sharon Mashihi um thing I recommended before Christmas, are doing they're doing something quite similar about very different topics. But it's just I feel like there is like a wave of women making excellent, excellent radio. Uh, audio work basically and I just can't wait for more I'm really excited (laughs) by it what about you what's your what's your next my next recommendation is another movie a little movie called The Matrix oh my god I've never heard of it (laughs) Uh, tell me well I hadn't seen it since it came out in 1999 and I have to say it really holds up we watched it in the first lockdown and I absolutely agree (laughs) great you can you can tell me if you agree with this as well. But I mean, first it has Keanu Reeves, who, as you know, I have a newfound appreciation for. It's like questionable whether his sort of dead-eyed 
acting is a choice in this movie, but it just it it works and he's brilliant and he's totally magnetic in that central character as Neo. It's a very slickly told story. It's a great concept. Like the action sequences are just beautiful. The way they made them dodge those bullets and all of that really cool stuff. And it's just so original. And it's just wild to watch this back and think about how influential this one film has been on our culture. Oh, you yeah. Know, not just like the aesthetic of it, but the ideas in it have seeped into everything. And I don't know, it made me think a lot as well. And this is a bit of a tangent about the idea of red pilling and how that's been adopted by the far right. And I don't know, just just wondering, obviously, like, this is a film made by two trans women and who have completely rejected those beliefs. But it just made me think about these American movies about individuals saving the worlds and the world not being what you think it is and how despite the politics, maybe there is something kind of violent lurking in that glorified individual view of the world. I don't know. It was. It, it just made me think a lot about the stories that American movies tell over and over and over again. And also just was so interesting to watch this movie from 99, like pre 9-11, in the same year that the Truman Show came out. So like two movies about how our worlds are simulations, um, which felt like this like kind of ultimate high capitalist fantasy, but also fear. I don't know. It it just made me think a lot about what art can do and how it changes the way we think. Sorry, I'm just babbling now. No, but. no, no, no. I'm like 100% here. You know I am for like <laughs> capitalism is a simulation and we need to put it in the fucking bin. <laughs> yeah, but it's also like the world as we know it is a simulation and therefore I as an individual am the only one who can see the truth. You know, there's something kind of messed up about that, isn't there? Yes, I completely agree. And as you so eloquently described, like holding the individual up in this way gives them like, it's a total mad fantasy of power and dominance, isn't it? And, and specialness, you know, are you this, are you the special one? Are you the chosen one? Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, it's awesome. It is awesome. I, 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 after we watched it, I really wanted to then watch the other ones. And John was like, absolutely not. <laughs> because so we, he said they do not stand up and I don't want to put you through it. Well, so we watched the second one, which Eddie claimed was better than the first, which was just not true. And he even admitted it after we watched it. He was like, okay, that was, was just <laughs> being contrary. But the second one is okay. It has some interesting ideas. I would actually recommend watching it. There is a very, very long like party orgy scene, which is interesting and surprising. And then we didn't watch the third one, which apparently is not very good at all. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Party orgy scene sounds quite tempting to me right now when it's yeah. been so long since I went to a party or an orgy. I'm, I'm ready. Yeah, it's like very long. It feels very <laughs> long for the movie. It feels like, why didn't they cut this down more? But also, I'm kind of into it kind of thing. <laughs> Anyway, see what you think. I will. <laughs> What's your next recommendation? My next one is one I just started. So I'm only two episodes in, but it's on Netflix. It's called Lupin or Lupin, if you don't want to say it in French. But it's uh, a series based on, on or inspired by, I should say, the books about Arsène Lupin, who was a gentleman thief. But it kind of turns a lot of that on its head. And it is just so fun and stylish and Oh my God, Omar Sy, who plays the lead, is probably the most handsome man I've 
ever seen like I look at his face and I'm like I have been starved (laughs) he's just gorgeous and he plays this character with such panache and what's the word I'm looking for like uh playful irony I think basically but I also love 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 that it you know it's I wouldn't say like it's a deep show but at the same time it's not just farting around on the surface you know like it really shows the two cities of Paris, which is a city that I love deeply. And I I used to live there for a bit. And there's a lot about it that's wonderful, but it is very, very bad for racial class and wealth segregation. And I love the fact that a show like this is shining a very like unsubtle spotlight on that fact, even while it's like, you know, he's kind of set up almost like a superhero in a way. And I love that, you know, Call My Agent, which is a show that you and I both love is, occupying a totally different version of Paris, you know, and I'm really into the fact that there's another version of Paris being given just as much uh, of a spotlight for for non-French speaking audiences. Do you know what I mean? So I've finished Lupin and it's, it's excellent. Um, No spoilers, no spoilers. No, I I won't. And um, was watching Call My Agent at the same time. So I was just like bathed in like wonderful Parisian French language productions that were just taking me away in the in the best way and yeah I agree there's something about Lupin that that is because it doesn't take itself very seriously yeah you know it, it has a depth to it but a lightness that was it, it meant it was like the perfect show to watch you know there is a fantasy in that like his heist when you start to dig it's like this actually makes no sense there's no way that he would be able to do this and like all of those chains of events would actually happen but you just suspend your disbelief and live with him in this wonderful parisian fantasy world that it also has some emotional heft and and some social and critical commentary and yeah i loved it yeah totally i would say my main question which don't answer because maybe it will be answered in the show or maybe it won't be because nothing needs to make sense is how does he have access to all those databases? Yeah, it's not answered. (laughs) What is your last and final recommendation for this show? My last and final recommendation for the show is the music of Beverly Glenn (gasps) Copeland. Yes, I'm so happy to hear you say that. Yeah, so I and I'm so happy to hear you scream in recognition. So this is great. Yeah, one of my greatest musical discoveries of last year, which you will be unsurprised to hear came via Eddie, was Beverly Glenn Copeland. Glenn Copeland is an American musician born in 1944. He spent most of his life in Canada and his music has really only recently just taken off. He's he's basically spent his life as a relatively obscure musician. But one of the reasons that this has happened is um, in September 2020, his label released this um, kind of compilation of his music from over the years called Transmissions. And it's it's really taken off. And we have just been listening to it absolutely obsessively all year, um, or since September, rather. And his style has spanned a number of genres, and you'll really hear that when you listen to Transmissions. But... The thing that unites all of the songs is just the most beautiful voice. One of the most beautiful voices I've ever heard, really. And I don't think that's an over-exaggeration. It's so full of emotion and pain and joy and just moving. So if you had to listen to one song, I would recommend The Color of Anyhow off of Transmissions and just let yourself be taken away and um, cradled by Beverly Glenn Copeland. I second absolutely everything you just said. It, yeah, 
he's uh, so he was recommended to me by um kate hutchinson who's a fantastic music journalist when i i tweeted that i was in a music rut and she was like let me solve this problem for you <laughs> and she did um i would also give a heads up to beverly just did an interview on the podcast death sex and money and it is so great he's a really gorgeous gorgeous person and he talks beautifully about his life and about his experience of having a band who are all much younger than him and how they kind of respond to him and it's just phenomenal he's wonderful yeah oh great yeah you'll really enjoy it darling i'll send you the link after we finish recording what's your last recommendation so this is like i'm gonna keep it short it's a movie it's called argo it came out a while ago um it's about this true story that happened in god i mean this is when my brain is now just absolutely crumbling i think it's it's basically a 70s set piece when there was the revolution in iran and some americans were trapped in the embassy and some other americans had to find a way to get them out and so they staged faking a movie like making a fake movie basically and listen i always think i hate ben affleck so i kind of stay away from ben affleck movies but um, my arm was slightly twisted and you've got to hand it to him. It's a great movie. The guy made a great movie. He produced it as well, I think. And maybe even, I don't know, direct, no, maybe he directed it and he stars in it. And, you know, he definitely does the like, my face is square and my eyes are half closed the whole time and I have one expression, but he does it very well. And it actually works because he's playing a, a spy essentially, but it's great. It's just really like uh, slick and glitzy and great costumes and, um, totally escapist the one thing that I think is always going to fuck me up about films like that is just the uh, overarching dream of like American interventionism and nationalist narratives but you know it's Hollywood so it's going to be that way but there's there's a really satisfying bit at the end where they you know match up all of the photographs of the people who were involved in reality and then the actors and the casting director generally like absolutely nailed it and that's always quite fun isn't it when you watch a film and then you're like oh my god that's there they are there they are the real people you know hollywood made them all slightly better looking as per usual but um they they did well so congrats ben affleck (laughs) (laughs) yeah i had a similar experience to you where everyone was complaining about the fact that this won best picture and so i kind of assumed it would be terrible and then i watched it on a plane and i was like that was a excellent confection of a movie right it's a great movie it does what you want it to it's a good story yeah it's a really good story well i i then went down a wormhole afterwards about the real guy who was fascinating and has written a lot of books who was a cia agent who ben affleck plays um and in playing totally erases his mexican heritage which is an interesting question although the guy himself his father was Mexican and his name is Montes, but he has never identified with his Mexican heritage because he didn't grow up. He grew up in the United States as an American citizen. He thinks of himself as American. So, you know, an interesting, interesting sliding there. But yeah, it's it's a totally, totally good movie. I still think Ben Affleck is probably made f- from sculpted cheese, though. Yeah, I don't know. I feel like I've come around to Ben Affleck. I feel like he's so sad these days that I, I've warmed to him. Mm. You know, no. he's just trying to, he's just trying to be a dude in the world and like often just struggling, it seems. Yeah. Okay. When, when you put it like that, I feel like a heartless bitch. 
but he and Matt Damon they have a lot to answer for frankly I know but I well yes and this is where the fact that I'm from Massachusetts comes up because I just when they won that Oscar for Good Will Hunting it was like the pride of the Boston area for most of my childhood so it's hard not for me not to feel kind of tribal about them Mm, interesting we don't have a lot (laughs) (laughs) what do you mean you've got you Carrie Plitt oh shush (laughs) Well, on that incredibly sickly note, I think we should end this show. (laughs) And that is all the time we have for today. So thank you to Carrie Plitt. It was so great to do this with you again. And to Eddie Knight for editing and music. It was so great to do it with you. Literary Friction is available as a podcast to download on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and to stream on nts.live. You can check us out on Twitter and Instagram. You can also get in touch with us on email, litfriction at gmail.com. If you have a spare minute, please rate and review us on iTunes. It makes a huge difference and helps us reach new listeners. And you can also feel free to email us with any ideas if you're thinking of becoming a patron for uh, shows we could do as special content for Patreon. So we're really open to hearing what you want to do. We will be back in a couple of weeks. Until then, I'm Octavia Bright with Carrie Plitt and this was Literary Friction. Literary Friction.